Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Previously on the last season of Partly Political Broadcast. Why is no one doing anything about this goddamn Brexit? Don't look now, but that Boris is saying something stupid again. I have to tell you. What? It seems, well, how do I put this? What is it? Tell me. It seems Labour still aren't dealing with anti-Semitism effectively. Oh, God, no! No! Hey, who is that creepy man who talks in riddles? Why, that's Jacob Rees-Mogg, that is. They say he's been alive for 400 years. Oh, dear God, what on earth is that bubbling, stinking pile of horror? That's... that's the state of politics. Hold me and never let go. Today, on the brand new season of Partly Political Broadcast. Why is no one doing anything about this goddamn Brexit? Don't look now, but that Boris is saying something stupid again. I have to tell you. What? It seems, well, how do I put this? What is it? Tell me. It seems Labour still aren't dealing with anti-Semitism effectively. Oh, God, no. No! Who is that creepy man who talks in riddles? Well, that's Jacob Wismod, that is. They say he's been alive for 400 years. Oh, dear God! What on earth is that bubbling, stinking pile of horror? That's... That's the state of politics. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no wait, we were definitely laughing at you. Yes, this show is back from its summer break, this is episode 112, I'm still Tin and Dieb despite my efforts, and this week as Prime Minister and Mother of Vinegar, Theresa May has said that the post-Brexit border solution for Ireland involves a friction-free movement of goods, I want to know just how much lube that would take, and wouldn't it just put people off going anywhere that they might witness that in the first place? 
While many spent the summer travelling, politics instead seemed to opt for a complete staycation, choosing to barely move an inch, gorging on self-hate and returning back to school competing with all its friends' holiday and coming-of-age stories by showing just how loudly it can armpit fart. Brexit is as Brexit was and Brexit does, with the story still being May's Checkers plan versus Brexiteers saying that they don't like that plan and they'd much prefer another plan that no one's thought of yet. Actually, I take that back. They did threaten to release a 140-page document which apparently has thoughts on a missile defence system and an army to defend the Falklands. But, you know, all that useful stuff that will really help the UK to get food and medicine. But they decided against publishing that report and they won't say why. And I totally feel their pain. I mean, I'm often pretty shy about releasing all the work that I haven't done yet too. And it's not easy finding an excuse that people will believe. I mean, 140 pages is an awful lot for a dog to eat. Former Foreign Secretary and current whoopee cushion filled with trifle, Boris Johnson, has been using his weekly Telegraph columns to attack May. First claiming that the Chequers plan has put a suicide vest round the UK and handed Brussels the control. But if the UK are wearing the vest and then Brussels have the control, then it's not a suicide vest, is it? I mean, that's either a homicide vest or the EU have very kindly stepped in to stop us harming ourselves. He followed that up with this week's piece where Bojo said that the Chequers plan would be the first time since 1066 when our leaders were deliberately acquiescing in foreign rule. Yeah, because I forgot that it was known as the rolling over of Hastings 1066. King Harold, of course, just strolled up to the Normans and said, no, please do stick an arrow in my eye. I feel it would make a lovely fashion edition and I'm well into face piercings. I mean, with these sorts of accurate criticisms, May must be trembling about Boris's threat to her leadership. What will his historical knowledge lead him to say next? That the Chequers deal will blow up Parliament just like Guy Fawkes definitely did and wasn't at all punished for? Or perhaps that the government has less creativity than the stunted period of the Renaissance. As they say, you must know the past to understand the present, which is why all of Boris's attempts to rally the British people to his side are fucking useless. May's retaliation has been to say that it's my deal or no deal, which isn't the best way to sell a bad idea against a worse idea. That's like saying it's my rock or your hard place, it's this bucket filled with sick or your one filled with shit. The Irish border remains a stumbling block, with May's proposal being that the UK stay in line with the customs union and single market until the EU agree enough has been put in place for that to change. Meanwhile, the European Research Group, aka a bunch of people who study what happens across the channel by doing crude drawings of people in stripy tops with onions around their neck and then tell each other it's definitely a photo, their plan to avoid a hard border is basically to have a hard border. Brilliant work, everyone. I mean, why they aren't using their talents for the UN Peace Corps helping to stop war by killing everyone, I don't know. Luckily for May, she has the backing of Blowtorch Melted Chupa Chup and Environment Secretary Michael Gove. You know, the sort of person who'll back you off a cliff and then walk down the cliff to go through your pockets. Gove said that May's plan is right for now, though that was two days ago, so there's every chance that Flip Flopper Gove now thinks it's wrong again. His spoon-shaped point was that it's right for now, but that a future Prime Minister could alter the relationship between the UK and the EU. But my concern is that all potential next Prime Minister candidates seem to be from at least several hundred years in the past, with no sign of that changing anytime soon. Gove has had an interesting few weeks that started with a bid to stamp out puppy farming, which is a very clever way to pander to any voters who like to supplement their dog whistle politics with actual tiny dogs, and also a nifty way to reduce litter too. Then, after vowing to save kittens and puppies, Gove stepped up the badger cull by doubling the amount to be shot in the next few weeks to be 40,000, and followed that up by refusing to condemn the xenophobic anti-Semite leader of Hungary and ox-cheek-with-a-face, Viktor Orban. 
According to Gove, the best way to tackle anti-Semitism is by avoiding individual criticisms of an anti-Semite. Now, firstly, you're probably thinking, is he part of the European Research Group with great thinking like that? Well, yes, actually, he is. And secondly, you might be thinking that I'd be against such sort of viewpoints, but if Gove keeps down this train of thought about tackling anti-Semitism by siding with an anti-Semitism, then maybe he'll announce that the best way to stand up to the EU is actually to just rejoin it and then start voting with the opposition on a number of policies in order to fight against them. Though, to be fair, judging by his views on tackling anti-Semitism, that's not too far off anyway. Do you reckon he only up the Badger Cull numbers because that way he's appearing equally prejudiced to those both black and white? Hmm... Meanwhile, the Labour Party spent the summer being the best opposition they could be, just unfortunately against themselves again rather than the government. The party have now agreed to adopt all the examples of anti-Semitism as defined by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance into its code of conduct. But they did that alongside a statement by the NEC saying that this will not in any way undermine freedom of expression on Israel or the rights of Palestinians, which to some was like the party crossing its fingers behind its back and to others not bold enough at saying criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. What is clear, though, is that, again, no one is happy, and I do wonder if, rather than try to please everyone, Labour should just full-out try to please no-one and both replace the NEC with just rabbis while simultaneously changing their logo to the Palestinian flag. Grassroots activist group Momentum have been working on proposals to make sitting MPs stand against rivals for re-selection, removing the notion of safe seats and terrifying many. Labour MP and man made entirely of porcelain, Chuka Amuna, has been panicked by this idea and told Labour leader and Morris Sendak creation Jeremy Corbyn to call off the dogs and stop trying to drive centre-left MPs out of the party, especially when they're trying so hard to drive straight through the middle of it themselves with as many casualties as possible. In the most bizarre response possible, Shadow Chancellor and balding lemur John McDonnell said Amuna's comments were grossly offensive as Labour members aren't dogs. I mean, has he never heard of idioms before? What does this mean for Labour politicians using idioms in the future? Will any dubious word have to be replaced with Labour members to assure no misunderstandings? Look before you Labour members. Don't put all your Labour members in one basket. A stitch in a Labour member saves nine. A Labour member in one's hand is worth two in the Labour member. I mean, those last two sound almost painful. Still, on the plus side, Labour have made one very bold stand against racism within their party by allowing MP Frankfield to resign the whip all by himself. It's now the Lib Dem conference, which is presumably being held in a studio flat in Brighton. So far, the highlights have been leader and shrunken BFG, Vince Cable, trying to change party rules so a non-MP could become leader on account of no one in the party wanting to do it. I mean, that's really selling the job, right? Cable won the leadership after no other members ran against him, and now even he's saying, oh, does somebody else want to do this? I mean, the whole party feels like a loveless marriage where they're only sticking at it because it's going to be far more hassle to quit. So far, the biggest draw at the conference was anti-Brexit campaigner Gina Miller telling the party that she doesn't want to be their leader either, nor does she like the term people's vote, before launching her new campaign called End the Chaos, which sounds a lot like a manufactured teen emo group. Meanwhile, Deputy Leader and Head Girl Joe Swinson told the conference that the party must own the failures of the coalition. Jesus. I mean, the mayors would have just paid for a dominatrix to individually going round telling each and every one of them that they're all a worthless piece of shit before forcing them to eat something off a boot. One of Cable's new policies is to get rid of inheritance tax and replace it with a tax on gifts instead, because, hey, nothing will win that party back into people's hearts quite like a war on birthdays and Father Christmas. 
And lastly, Shave Totoro and former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond has resigned from the SNP after allegations of sexual harassment were made against him. He says he's resigned to avoid the case facilitating attacks against the SNP, which is funny as nothing in his political record shows that Salmond has any idea that there's such a thing as unwanted attention. Two Russians have been named as suspects in the attempted Novichok poisoning murder of Sergei Skripal, though both men say that they were in Salisbury to look at the gothic beauty of the cathedral with its 123-metre spire and famous clock. Really? You expect Brits to believe that? I mean, if you want to convince the public you aren't responsible, you should never, ever research a place. Just say you wanted to go to Sainsbury's, but you got on the wrong train because you were pissed, and will be way more convinced. An oil painting of Tweed Blobfish, Nigel Farage, went on sale for £25,000 but failed to attract any buyers because, God knows, he's cost everyone enough money already. But also, why would anyone waste so much dosh making it look like you just always have the TV on? And toilet paper is far cheaper and more comfortable than canvas. And the Green Party have elected joint party leaders of Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartlett, who previously led the Greens with Caroline Lucas. Well, I guess they are big fans of recycling things. Oh my god, there was loads to catch up, wasn't there? And yet, at the same time, absolutely nothing of note whatsoever. I mean, it feels like politics this summer has just been that friend who talks to you for 45 minutes about that story that they could have explained in a sentence and given you just as much relevant information. Well, never fear, because this podcast is back just in time to digest all that waffle and then fall asleep because waffles are very carb-heavy. I mean, sorry, uh, I mean, digest it and then regurgitate it into your ear holes in manageable forms so you too can think, oh wow... None of that is progress at all, is it? Mm, regurgitating into your ears probably isn't the best way to sell this podcast, is it, at all? Welcome to any new listeners, and thank you to returning listeners for rejoining this nonsense, even though I'm mainly talking about vomiting in your lug holes. You are welcome. Can you tell my daughter is now nine months old? Yep, vomiting in the ears is basically my morning wake-up every single day. Ah, parenting. Um, so, sorry, hello. Uh, did you have a nice summer holidays? Um, I did, thank you for asking. With a mix of some very lovely shows at Green Man Festival and elsewhere, um, a weird discovery of a Welsh dragon projection, and nearly two weeks in Hong Kong with comedians Beckhill and Howard Reed um, doing some lovely gigs to kids and adults, all of which were a lot of fun. And Hong Kong was um, amazing for a number of reasons, uh, though none of which are the durian fruit, which I tried, and it is not dissimilar to wrapping my mouth around the foot of a corpse that's been dragged through very old onion soup. So, no, not that. Um, but one thing that was amazing was nearly all the audiences at the adult gigs uh, thought Brexit was a shit show. Um, I mean, these are people who've mainly moved to Hong Kong to avoid paying tax, and despite that sort of moral compass, they still think Brexit is absolute bollocks. Incredible. Um, the other really amazing thing um, about being in Hong Kong, apart from all the things, uh, giant Buddhas and um, fruits that weren't durians, um, the other amazing thing was I met a podcast listener out there. Holy shit, yes, this show is a officially international. I mean, I have received some lovely messages from various of you lot from around the globe before, but I didn't actually think I'd meet one of you at a gig. So, massive shout out to John, um, as well as uh, Jeannie and Nian, who were dragged along to the gig, despite not listening to the show at all. Um, that's right, if you're a non-listener, but you hang out with a listener, then you can have a shout out too. But how will you know? Because you don't listen. Ah. Um, but yeah, it was so lovely to have someone come up to me after the show in Hong Kong and say, hey, I love your podcast. Uh, properly uh, made my day um i hope everyone that i met out in hong kong um and, and performed out there has been okay despite the terrifying sounding tofu mankut uh mankut is that how i'm probably saying that hugely wrong um but it is very weird seeing pics uh, on the news of places that you walk past just days before now um completely flooded
shredded and torn to shreds. Uh, I mean, the weather in Hong Kong seemed excessive at the very best of times. I mainly walk around sort of sweating like some sort of suckling pig. Uh, there was a day when I was walking around eating an apple and I was genuinely worried someone might eat me. Um, so based on that, I assume that everyone in Hong Kong has just shrugged it off and carried on eating immense amounts of gluten as per always. God, I ate so much gluten. So, so much gluten. Um, thank you also to everyone who filled in the survey over the summer. As you may have noticed, uh, the most voted for tagline is now the official podcast tagline. Don't like it? Uh, well, you didn't vote, so you can't complain. Ha! It's almost like the real world and everything. Um, I've also taken into account lots of your other thoughts, and hopefully this week's interview is the right sort of length and sounds a bit better too. And there are tons of guests coming up along the lines of what survey contributors asked for, so hopefully you will like them too. Um, obviously, though, if you have anything else you'd like to add, uh, well, the survey is still up, but only because I don't want to delete it. And Survey Monkey make you pay to download it bastards i mean how does a monkey even collate a survey anyway who let that happen i mean that's gonna it's haywire isn't it is there a million monkeys and just eventually they come out with anyway look you can also get in touch via the at purple bro twitter the partly political broadcast facebook the website contact page um, at partly political broadcast.co.uk or partly political broadcast at gmail.com and don't forget that if you want to review this podcast on the pod app of your choice country wall or even dirty lorry that you can write on with your fingers make sure you wash your hands after though then please do that as well um also as survey results mentioned i fully understand that some of you can't afford to donate to the show and to be fair i can't either uh, which is why i keep asking you lot for money instead um but if you can donate to the uh, ko-fi.com ko-fi.com forward slash parpole bro for a one-off donation and buy me some sort of a coffee i had i had matcha lattes in hong kong and mm, they tasted wrong but so right and they were green so i can't work out that means they're good for me right or very very bad for me oh it's very confusing um or you can go to pa- uh, patreon.com forward slash purple bro uh, for a monthly donation and all of that is hugely appreciated um though uh, i will be keeping the patreon mainly without any extras as i want any extra bits and bobs to be available to you all because of equal and fair society and all that so if you donate it is purely out of love just do it out of love um uh, though i've been thinking maybe maybe i should keep the patreon all free and then maybe uh, I should also adopt the kind of conservative policy of just saying that if any of you want to donate hundreds of thousands of pounds to me, then maybe we can go for lunch uh, and uh, you, you'll pay, obviously. And then I'll shamelessly weave your policies into the show while pretending they are my ideas. Yeah? Who's in? Guys? Guys? Uh, well, it was it was worth a try. Um, only other bit of admin to mention this week is that them clever types at Acast who host this show have made it so that their site uh, and podcasts with their site now work with Google Assistant. So I think you can just shout at your phone or laptop or robot dog or weird Android slave to play this show uh, from now on. Or if it's anything like when I tried to use Siri while driving, you'll probably just shout a lot and then it'll tell you there are no results for the party party broad bean and you'll nearly swerve into the central reservation. So maybe don't try it just yet. So, uh, on this week's podcast, as the show returns to its weekly noise, I am speaking to expert in attack journalism, Dr Bethany Usher, who explains why the phenomenon of the papers going all out against someone isn't a new thing. Uh, Also, of course, there is some Brexit fallout, despite it being entirely possible that I could have just repeated an old episode instead, and you'd gain about as much from it. I'm starting to genuinely wonder if everyone will still just be discussing what to do about Brexit 100 years after it happened, while we all gnaw on overpriced diversified metals and warplanes for nutrition. But, of course, um, before all of that, here is a little bit of this. Fracking! There, that's just for the person who keeps complaining about the foul language on this show. 
you're welcome. Fracking is the practice of sticking a whacking great drill in the ground to extract shale gases, and it's never been something the general public are all that keen on, what with evidence suggesting poking large great holes into the ground and injecting it with chemicals to take other stuff out of it probably isn't all that great for the planet. In fact, a report that was given to government ministers in 2015 but only surfaced in August, just four days after a fracking firm was given a brand spanking new permit to earth pump parts of Lancashire, says that it increases air pollution between 1% and 4%. Cool, so that sounds totally worth it for a government who've now been taken to court three times for failing to tackle air pollution and have only 18% of public support for fracking and I'm certain that those people live on boats anyway. Labour have said that were they to come into power, they would unequivocally ban fracking, but Kua Driller, the company who will start fracking between Preston and Blackpool in coming weeks, say that the GMB union, an affiliate of the Labour Party, backs it. And that is probably because initially it will provide many jobs, but after a while when all those places where the jobs are sink into the ground only to be eaten by giant prehistoric earthworms that have been woken up by the wrong type of drill music, then they'll probably think again. Yes, that is totally science. Uh Uh-huh. Totally giant prehistoric earthworms. Totally. Yeah, where's my sources? Up your butt, you dink. It's total science. In July, the Conservative government made fracking for shale gas a permitted development, which means they no longer need planning permission to crust-fuck the place. So now, for the first time since 2011, when fracking triggered a minor earthquake, work is about to begin again, and the company Cure Driller have an extended injunction against any protesters, so nobody can have a go and lie in front of drills if that's a thing why would you i don't know if you'd do that anyway rumor has it though that the conservatives are getting jumpy about changing the planning permission policy so let's hope that they u-turn on this before even more earthquakes or giant prehistoric earthworms get them jumping even higher Speaking of intensive groundwork, the Department of Health isn't usually the government sector that springs to mind when you hear that phrase. But they are planning to have a blanket sell-off of 1,332 hectares of NHS-owned land to raise funds for the service. 117 of the plots up for sale are currently being used for medical or clinical purposes, and 63 other sites have had the information on them held back due to issues of sensitivity, which makes me assume that they aren't anaesthetists wards. The Department of Health insists only unwanted land is being sold, but considering how much easier their lives would be if the NHS vanished, that could be anything. The cash will be ring-fenced for spending on NHS services and much of the land will go to build houses because there is nothing nicer than knowing that you're going to go to sleep on a site where thousands of people's corns were locked off or hemorrhoids removed. Mm Mm-mm, sweet dreams. With so many sites up for sale, the Labour Party are demanding the Department of Health come clean with exactly what's being sold off, and the government still hasn't announced where the money for its 100 billion NHS five-year funding plan is coming from, so there's every chance it's all just going to be turned into flats in order to pay for whatever's left of it, like a couple of sticking plasters or something. But actually, I'm thinking that could be great if they sold all of it off. I mean, if they leave most of the medical equipment in those homes, you might not have to get out of your bed to see a doctor. Brilliant. On the downside, of course, I'm not sure you'd want your waiting room for a kitchen or have to bring back a small sample every time you used your bathroom. Ever ones to make things harder for themselves, the Labour Party appear to be backing proposals for sitting MPs to have to stand against rivals for re-selection, meaning they'd have to run again for a seat that they've already won. While I'd always be angry about being made to stand once I'd happily been sitting for a bit, this would solve issues such as MP and the sort of person whose house you'd run past quickly as a kid, Kate Huey, who appears in both voting record and general mouth emissions to be far more UKIP than Labour, but has somehow kept her seat in Vauxhall for 29 years. The new proposals put forward by Momentum have backing from 77% of members, but Shadow Business Secretary and Cartoon Mouse Rebecca Long-Bailey has said that they'll need to be careful, as while it would make the party more democratic, 
It could also lead MPs to spend too much time focusing on their own re-election campaigns rather than Parliament. But I don't know, I mean it would mean that they'd have even less time to just attack each other every ten minutes as well. It could well be the political equivalent of putting more toys in the hamster cage. You know what I mean? This is just one of loads of proposals for the conference committee next week, with 171 of them about Brexit, including whether or not the party should adopt a call for a people's vote. And you'd think that that would be a goer, what with the party wanting to be more democratic and all that. But then again, maybe some people just like sitting for a very long time. Mainstream media is a term often bandied around without any concern for other bodies of water, you know, like rivers or lakes, whose news outlets feel very left out. But in the real life, where I'm not being an idiot, the media is a powerful entity that dictates our daily doings all the way from allowing me to be super snarky about things on Twitter or informing us about the hows, wheres and whys of really, really awful global happenings. News is an ever more necessary part of an overly connected world, and freedom of the press is a hugely useful thing that does stop us living in a dictatorship where all you hear about is how mighty our leader is. I mean, instead, in the UK at least, what it actually does is show us how she dances like a wooden push-button toy being handled by a drunk hippo. But while this press freedom is important, a lack of enforceable press regulation has led to, over the years, phone hacking scandals, a rise in fake news, and an increase in what's known as attack journalism. Much like its name suggests, it's when the press find an enemy and prey on them day after day like a particularly unimaginative and unadventurous vulture. In the last few years in the British press, we've seen that happen to, amongst others, Ed Miliband, Gina Miller, the judges who ruled UK Parliament needed consent of MPs to give notice of Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, a ton of celebrities and footballers, and by way of actively ignoring everything I do, me. I mean, okay, not me, but I'm sure they're ignoring me on purpose because I've done loads of great things lately. I mean, today I ate two packs of crisps. Two. What a ledge, huh? I mean, those are just a few of the many names who've been targeted above and beyond what you might expect. So why do it? How does it happen? Do all the media mogul types like Evil Prune, Rupert Murdoch and No Next Spam Sculpture Paul Dacra all hang out together and decide who to target next? What effect does this have on public opinion and politics? And seriously, why does no one want to write an article about my two bags of crisps heroics? Bloody heathens. So after a summer of a lot of this sort of thing across the board, this week I interviewed Dr Bethany Usher. Bethany is a lecturer in journalism at Newcastle University, where she focuses her teaching and research on campaigning, activism, celebrity news, self-identity and media as a mechanism for social control. Having started her career as a tabloid journalist, she knows quite a lot about it all from first-hand experience. And Bethany recently gave a talk all about attack journalism at the Byline Festival this summer, and as I was unable to make that, I selfishly thought I'd just ask her to tell me all about it on this show instead, and she kindly agreed. A um, couple of things to mention before you listen. Uh, Bethany does say this herself during the interview, but she wanted me to point out that she is at no point uh, during her chat demeaning the accusations of anti-Semitism against Labour, uh, but more looking at the newspaper's coverage of such events, because... As always, with everything um, except social media, there is a ton of nuance about these things. So just remember all the nuancing and just keep them nuances in your mind. Um, second thing is that I managed to hear Bethany talk about Thomas Paine and they referred to him as Thomas Mann about five times when asking her questions. Um, you can hear her telling me at one point that I can edit that out. But no, I couldn't be bothered. I just thought I'd let it be known that I'm an idiot. There you go, tabloids. That's crisps and Thomas Prejudice. Just bring it. Someone, please notice me. Someone. Sorry, I mean, um, I hope you'll find this as fascinating a chat as I did. Here's Bethany. So probably uh, an obvious question, because I feel like uh, some of it's in the title, but what is attack journalism? 
Um, so attack journalism is when a newspaper or a news outlet or a group of news outlets target a specific person so uh, for a sustained attack and normally that is around the fact that the person or the individual is perceived as some kind of risk um, to the either the newspaper or the hegemonic power uh, established hegemonic power of government or politics um, or it could be just as simple as that there are commercial risks um, so what newspapers do is when newspapers are making decisions about stories it passes through um, a series of values tests to see if it makes the pages or if it makes the news bulletin and if someone is perceived as a direct threat to those values then an attack can form Right, so it's something, I mean, I sort of feel like I've seen it quite a lot. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I see it almost every day in newspapers at the moment. Yeah, well, it's one of News's um, longest established discourses, and that's where my research comes into it, and establishing how long it's been going on for and why it's come to be such a dominant area of journalistic practice. So it isn't anything new, although the big studies in it so far have kind of called it a 20th century phenomenon. I've got it back as far as the um, beginnings of the press in the 18th century. And for example, one of the first examples I talk about is Thomas Paine, who wrote Rights of Man and the, the American Brit French Revolutionary, who was British, um, but was, you know, kind of um, arguing um, for the rights of ordinary working class people, for universal suffrage. Um, and the attack that formed on him was so linguistically similar to things that happen today. So the first time I saw the link was between what was happening with Ed Miliband and the discourse I'd found in the 18th century about Thomas Paine. Um, so basically what I did was look at the content around him rather than the stuff he'd written himself. Um, and instead of looking at that as evidence for some form of biography, I was looking at what journalism and how, it, how the journalism was formed and how it worked. So, um, for example, they called him the devil, Beelzebub, a traitor. Um, they talked about how effigies were burnt of him across Britain. Um, they really talked about him in celebrity terms, so um, about his private life, salacious details, suggested he was homosexual. It was basically beyond the pale. That was the idea, was if we cast this person as beyond the pale, then we would limit um, people's engagement with them. Actually, what happened was opposite, <laughs> which is that more people became interested and because of his value of his visibility, because they'd raised his visibility, celebrified him, it actually more people were interested in what he had to say. It's a bit like when we ban a song today on Radio 1 and suddenly everyone buys it and it's number <laughs> one. It's that kind of interest that people intrinsically have. But what I was fascinated with how the language worked in such a similar way, the, the use of belittling adjectives, just in such a similar way to what was happening with Ed Miliband at the time. And it was the same kind of language, language traitor, um, you know, kind of this threat that, you know, that he would bring Britain to its knees, that it, that it, he was a threat to the established order. And it, and it was the same kind of language and the same kind of discourse that created about Ed Miliband at that time. And in many ways, what happened with Ed Miliband was a forerunner for what we have with Jeremy Corbyn at the moment. So they established, they pushed the narrative, how far are we going to get away with this? And now Jeremy Corbyn as a greater perceived risk even than Ed Miliband, you know, even further left, is um, it, it, they've established patterns. They know how far they can push this before, this, it, before um, it becomes... Um, 
it becomes, you know, crosses the line into into kind of territory of, of being against regulation of the press, the Ipso Code, and so they push it right to that line. So, I mean, uh, firstly, that's, that's amazing that um, uh, is it Thomas Mann, that he became more popular. I love that, because the phrase, all is it um, all news is, is good news, or uh, all publicity is good publicity? Sorry, that sort of feels like that came from there. Yeah. Um, but, um, but so what's the... But just to sort of be clear, what's uh, there are specific signs, I'm guessing, to attack journalism as opposed to just a piece kind of about someone doing something wrong? Like, how do you differentiate between the two? Well, that's interesting. So, um, some, but you know, there is the public interest test on everything. Is that I always start with my students, or, or when I worked as a journalist, my rule is that you know, does it pass the public interest? Um, so. You could argue that when it's about politicians, it's always in the public interest. But um, what we're doing here is creating sometimes false narratives or um, developing a kind of sustained narrative that comes from different angles, which is really about challenging the authority of the voice or, or undermining this person in the in the minds of the public. That's very different than revealing some genuine details about someone's life or gossip. However, what I find really interesting about things like the Mail Online, for example, and their use of celebrity culture, is that you can see elements of the attack in it, you know, so it's very gendered. Women are attacked based on their looks. Um, sometimes that can become really sustained, particularly if a woman dares to speak out about what they're doing. Um, so they will use gossip, can be used as a form of attack, but a throwaway story saying, you know, someone went to the shops or, um, you know, somebody was seen with, with someone else is not attack journalism in its own right. It's got to be sustained to be form of an attack. Right. So that's so like you were saying previously you mentioned with like Ed Miliband, I remember where it got to a point when they were criticizing the fact that he had two kitchens or whatever, and you did sort of think, What has this got to do with how he works as a politician? Well, absolutely. And it wasn't just about that, of course. So you can't one of the kind of narratives of the press is you can't be wealthy and a socialist. That's a long established narrative, you know, that Tony Benn suffered from that. It's a, you know, that this kind of like it's a, it's almost hypocrisy if you're wealthy and socialist. Of course, we know that's a nonsense. The term champagne socialist in its own right. I mean, my mum, who, who's an ardent sort of old left-wing socialist, always says, well, why shouldn't the working classes have champagne? Why should it be <laughs> the kind of thing of the wealthy? Well, you know, why can't we all have champagne if we want? Um, and, and But it's that kind of narrative. But with Ed Miliband, of course, it, um, it, I mean, some of it is astonishing. I have a slide that I put up when I'm presenting on, on Ed Miliband, and people kind of gasp when they see the level of it from, you know, he won't wear the trousers, terms like this, it's just these phrases, these direct quotes. So he's trying to get the block all our vote. He's an imbecile, a grisly mix of left and lefter. Um, and then there's this thing about the home, the North London home. It's always that phrase. His two-bathroom house in North London. Well, for people who live in London, they often know that this is kind of a shorthand for being Jewish. So when you have phrases, because what they're talking about is where he lives. And and we've talk, I've talked about this with other academics and other journalists, is this shorthand basically, that when you're talking about a Jewish person you talk, in, say, North London, you're talking about a kind of certain group of Jewish in, intelligentsia. 
that live in a certain area of London. And if you think of all uh, of lots of the physical ways they descri described Ed Miliband, weird, odd-looking, what are they saying here? What is the meaning behind this? It's, it's in my mind, a very, it's a, well, maybe, maybe not even that subtle, but there was a dog whistling with it. If you have any understanding of representation in journalism, you will guess, but maybe for the vast majority of the public, it might just slightly wash over them. Sure. Sure. And how much, I mean, because the other the other interesting thing is how many papers kind of got on board, say, with Edmund Ben and then with, with Corbyn now, whatever. You know, it's, it's a number of papers ganging up on someone all at once, even though they're perhaps different ownership overall. So how much does the kind of media mogul ownership of press, is that, is that having an effect or how, are, how is it that they all work together on this? Well, it's interesting. Journalism's essentially, uh, journalists are essentially pack animals. There is even a phrase, isn't it, that, you know, the pack journalists in the pack when they're on a, on a story and essentially um you know, there's two ideas. A lot of people think that kind of journalists get together and there's this great conspiracy or media owners get together and there's this great conspiracy. Actually, I don't think it works that way. Having worked for tabloid newspapers myself, is that what happens is if a story kind of becomes big, perks the interest, other people follow it. It becomes a kind of feeding loop in that way. Um, and that's for stories, be not just attack journalism, that's for journalism generally. But of course, with people like Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, there's also the the added dimension of the political affiliation of the newspapers. So um, in this country, um, the vast majority of newspapers are um, on the right <coughs> of the political spectrum. spectrum. They are um, right-leaning, usually conservative supporting when it comes to elections. Um, we have, well, you could argue the Guardian, the Independent and the Mirror who are other, you know, who sometimes, but um, increasingly because of various things that are going on um, around funding of the press, um, they are less likely to rock the board. There's some, you know, some things come in in terms of how the press might be funded that they don't want, that Jeremy Corbyn, for example, is directly arguing around. So, so Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband were both not just um, a threat to the to the he um, hegemonic power of um, capital or corporatism. They were also direct threats to the press themselves. So for Je for Ed Miliband, he was adamant that they were about Leveson too. Um, he was disgusted at phone hacking. He talked directly about breaking up um, the Murdoch Empire, which is where the kind of the sun were the leaders really um, of. Of the pack, but he also talked about the mail online, particularly after his um, stories about his dad. Um, and sorry, the mail and the mail newspaper, not the mail online. Um, and he spoke directly about Rebecca Brooks too. And there's a famous reported quote, which is, um, "You made it, well, apparently a journalist turned around to him and said, you made it personal about Rebecca. Now we'll make it personal about you.'" Wow. And so many of the kind, yeah, so many of the Westminster people were astonished that Ed Miliband suffered such attack. You know, politic really wasn't politics good guys. They just couldn't get their heads around the level of it. And then we move on to Jeremy Corbyn, who takes it even a step further because he just point blank refuses to engage with most of them. He refuses to, he, he directly works with the local press. And there's journalists in London, I, I'm astonished sometimes, really kind of left-leaning liberal journalists on Twitter that I follow, who are so kind of dismissive of his engagement with the local press. 
recently were doing um, the kind of height of the anti-Semitism um, allegations. There was um, a story about him going and talking to loads of local um, news outlets, newspapers about the problems with public transport, trains and buses. And the sneering on Twitter about, you know, how unimportant this story is from from kind of London-based journalists. Well, actually, if you live in the north and you're relying on public services and we're in a crisis in the north in terms of public transport at the moment, this is a big story. But the it was this kind of dismissal of that he was almost running away. How could he, you know, engage with something so trivial? Um, but really, that's about him, his refusal to engage really with the London-based media, and at the same time saying that he, you know, that he would, you know, look at the BBC, would look at different funding models for journalism, you know, kind of massive media reforms, and so he is a, a huge threat to the press. But then, so the, I want to ask really how how much effect do these newspapers have? Because does his not pandering to the newspapers then? therefore mean that more people think he is all the things that the newspapers say you know or, or do newspapers still even have much of an effect because I sort of realize that the mail I think gets three million readers a day but we've got 64 million people in the UK is this you know how much power do do they have well the mail's the biggest news website in the world the mail online so they have you know other ways of reaching audiences that are very well established the Guardian's read more online than in print. Uh, I, I completely take the point that do they have power in their own right? Okay, but we look, we're, we're looking at a, a frenzy that is going across almost across all newspapers. So if you can and television in this instance. So if you combine those things, then you can see um, you can see the level of the reach actually. Whether it's going to have the opposite effect or whether it is having the opposite effect in in reality, which is the value of Corbyn's increased invisibility, means that far more people are actually engaging with his message because they're going, is this really what he's like? And going and looking online to find out for themselves. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Is what what is going to be the next thing here? And I just want to uh, kind of stay on this one is that I'm not saying that that all of the allegations of what of anti-Semitism in relation to the Labour Party or society as a whole should be dismissed. That's not my argument. There's been some manifestations recently, such as um, the graffiti on the Warsaw Ghetto, which I think is indefensible. What I'm saying is that. It's not just that with Corbyn, though, isn't it? He's also been a, he's been accused of being a Russian spy. There's been allegations about his private life. It's you know they come from different angles to see what will stick. And I am really, really, really sympathetic to the fears of of um, Jewish people who are saying things like, um, "I feel frightened. I feel under threat," because they are bombarded with news constantly that anti-Semitism is at its highest ever levels. So they, their fears are absolutely justified because they are they are genuinely frightened. But does that make Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite? I would argue not. I think that's a constructed reality. Sure. I mean, I suppose it's the thing with all of these stories or with attack journalism is that, um, you know, nuance is lost in that, uh, as you say, allegations of anti-Semitism in Labour, um, there's there's truth to, to some of them, and, and, or probably all of them, I don't, I don't wish to sort of judge, but then uh, at the same time, that doesn't mean that all the stories that are coming out are also true. It's It, it requires a kind of critical thinking eye on everything. 
Yeah, there was a book about this in um, about American politics um, by a guy called Larry Sabato, which was called Feeding Frenzy and How Attack Journalism Transformed American Politics is his basic argument. Um, I think that he, he again says it's a 20th century phenomenon and I and as I say I think it's earlier and I think that he misses some examples of it so for him it's only in relation to the political sphere but I look at examples outside of the political sphere too and why they occur um, Raheem Sterling is one I've been looking at recently um, and but if you look at what's happening um, in American politics as well as that you have a resurgence of the left in the Democratic Party who are unseating and um, the kind of centennial liberal Democrats, um, you know, left left people and people like Cynthia Nixon, um, from who was in Sex in the City, discussing things like um, individual, you know, universal health care um, in America. Um, and there's already, um, and, and, you know, of course, Bernie Sanders. And um, we've also got a parallel discussion over there um, about um, that they're anti-Semitic. So that's been some accusations levelled at both Cynthia Nixon and um, Bernie Sanders too. Now, <laughs> the conspiracy theorist might argue that this is a globalised kind of coordinated attack. I don't buy that. I think that feeds into this narrative of... Um, of kind of the of Jewish control of the media, and I just do not buy it. I think that's that that is anti-Semitic. What I think is that at an individualized level, their support for Palestinian rights can be read as. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anti-Semitic, and so therefore it becomes a narrative. And we'll be back with Bethany in a minute, but first... Yeah, sorry, it's still happening. And by happening, I mean absolutely nothing important has happened since the last Brexit fallout over eight weeks ago. 
nothing at all. I mean, sure, stuff has happened. Uh, Theresa May went to Africa to pledge post-Brexit investment, even though she can't yet because she doesn't know what sort of trade deals we'll be able to do because she still hasn't sorted out Brexit yet. Boris Johnson has regularly complained about May's checkers plan week after week without ever saying what his own plan is because he still doesn't have one, though he is currently going through a divorce with his wife due to delivering goods to non-union members, so now he'll have to be part of the single market whether he likes it or not. Labour still don't know what they're doing, but shallow foreign secretary Emily Thornberry has said Labour will vote against whatever deal May does, even though it may be the best deal despite being an awful deal, but no one really knows. Labour may be about to back a people's vote on the final deal, even though there isn't enough time for that to happen. The EU won't accept May's checkers plan because it's shit, but they don't need to accept it to stop a no-deal happening, but they do need to accept the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland-Irish border solution, which no one can agree on, so that's not looking good either, and Northern Ireland still doesn't have an assembly, so that's fun, and Dominic Raab had a six-hour meeting with Michel Barnier, for which I assume he made a packed lunch of his favourite prep food and brought a tenner pad, and at the end they said progress has been made, but not on any of the important things, so it doesn't really matter, and let's face it, what they actually mean is that Raab probably just finally worked out how to use the lift or his keycard, or finally realised that some of the people there are speaking another language, and that's why he didn't understand it, and ultimately it's all a big stupid, and there's now only six months left, and Michel Barnier says a deal is possible within six to eight weeks, but he hasn't accounted for the fact that all UK politicians are insistent about sabotaging their own lives again and again, like a bunch of stupid lemmings, only none of the ones with builders' hats or stop signs, just the shitty ones who fall off stuff. And the IMF and the Bank of England have all said we're fucked money-wise, and Brexiters have said, well, what would they know? But they would know, because they're the people in charge of the money. Cool? Cool? Not cool. Not at all cool. Oh, and um, the Lib Dems also want a uh, people's vote, but it doesn't even look like they want to be in their own party at the moment, so so chances are they're just saying that as a last-ditch, hey, let's have a dirty weekend away and try to repair things before giving up and sleeping in separate beds. In amongst all that, though, there are some interesting fangs. And first thang is that the Good Law Project, headed up by Julian Morm, who was a podcast on the show way, way back when in the olden days, they sued the Electoral Commission on two charges. One was questioning the adequacy of the Electoral Commission's investigation into the Vote Leave's campaign spending, which ended up with the Electoral Commission admitting that Vote Leave and aptly named head of youth group Believe, Darren Grimes, I mean, seriously, come on, Darren Grimes, he'd broken the law and now uh, all that stuff's with the Popo 5 I mean, Darren Grimes, come on, he may as well be called Nicholas Naughty Bloke. But the second bit of the suingness was that the Good Law Project said that the Electoral Commission had got the law wrong about donation. Whoa, that's a big old statement. Hey, Commission, you know the rules that you regulate and oversee? Yeah, well, you don't know them. Slam, you're basic. But according to the High Court decision last week, um, the Good Law Project were right. It seems the Electoral Commission told Vote Leave that they could donate surplus funds to other Leave campaigners, such as Darren Muckyface. So as soon as Vote Leave went over budget, they instead gave £620,000 to be Leave to pay for him using Cambridge Analytica's services and £100,000 to Veterans for Britain to do the same. But the Electoral Commission didn't give the same info to Stronger In, the Remain campaign, and so when they hit their limit, they just had to stop and turn down any donations. So the regulator hasn't been regulating properly, which has all sorts of implications not only for Warren G, but also for the Electoral Commission, Darren Dirty Knees' case that's with the police, and everyone's least favourite god scrubbers, the DUP, who also look like they may have purposefully overspent on vote to leave ads, probably because Jesus told them. So a lot of people done a lot of bad things, and now what will happen? Well, we'll probably still go 
ahead with a plan that isn't really there, and then in ten years' time when it's all done and we're living in a more rainy version of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Darren's shitty teeth and the vote leave lot may end up in court and we'll all look back and go, ha ha ha, this whole mess is because people were illegal and no one cared. Yes, I'm very confused about what message to teach my kids as well. Hey, if you learn to lie, break rules and genuinely refuse to back down about it all, you too could be successful. No, 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 put that book away. There'll be no learning about accurate history here. Why not just go play outside and do your best to betray your friends? This section will be back next week when I'll be playing the last few minutes all over again, just at 1.5 speed. You're welcome. And now, back to Bethany. So, I mean, the, the, I suppose one of the biggest questions then is is what uh, can anyone do about it? If it's been happening for this long, and I mean, we've seen it across, uh, not only with the kind of, uh, with Corbyn and Miliband and Raheem Sterling, but we saw, I remember, quite a lot with Gina Miller about the Brexit thing, and she ended up kind of getting death threats yeah. from all the calls being attracted. And even it was against sort of judges and stuff uh, who... Who, yeah. Um, voted, you know, for for politicians to have a a, a vote in parliament. It, so, but what? I mean, what can we do? Because there is there's the there's the independent press standards organisation. Do they do they do yeah. anything? Are they at all useful? Well, well, at the moment, this um, attack. You, well, this is really interesting. So that's my campaign that I'm starting as part of my research and part of my book. Is at the moment the Ipsos Code of Practice um, says you can harass through news gathering, so persistent pursuit. And what I'm arguing for is that we should also extend that, that you can harass through publication based on um, a, a variety of characteristics, so using repeated reference to things such as class, gender, sex, um, race, disability, various other uh, other characteristics, but that there is that there is an harassment through publication too, which at the moment none of the codes of practice have um, in them neither Ofcom or Ipsos. So I'm going to talk um, to the Media Reform Coalition about this. Um, I'm going to be doing kind of public letters as a few people said that they would support such a move. So that's going to be one thing that I think we could do to change it. The other thing is, of course, that this attack is not just in the press now. It's also dissipated to the crowd across social media. Um, and the crowd can become part of it and can also become part of the defence. And you see this with both Ed Miliband and with Jeremy Corbyn, the supporters of them are one of the most um, local counters to the attack. But there are distinct differences between how countering the attack has worked in terms of Miliband and in terms of Corbyn. So in Miliband, um, when Miliband was happening, one of the best ways of countering the attack, one of the most successful ways was um, the uh, Milli fandom. You know, Abby Tomlinson, who was attacking a young girl, who was attacking her own right. I mean, because she did it, they kind of started on her, and I was thinking, God, this is a 17-year-old girl. Come on now. Um, but she, her narrative was not negative. It wasn't um, abusive back to the people who were attacking Ed Miliband. What she did was create a positive narrative. Um, and a lot of young people engaged in that, and it was really positive. It was about all about his good stuff. It was about his, um, you know, these kind of superimposing in him on the body of famous film stars, and you know what, how they thought he was like hot. And it was just this really positive narrative that actually interrupted the attack of the press at such a level they were. I mean, some of the journalists were furious about it. We saw it in terms of the tweet um, discussions between um, Louise Mention. Abby Tomlinson, for example, where it was like it got really nasty by uh, on Louise Mention's part, and that was because 
this young woman was so successful interrupting this attack and they, they weren't happy about it. But there's something different going on with Jeremy Corbyn. And what it is is that his some of his supporters are attacking, using attack in their own right. It's getting nasty. And it falls into abuse. It falls into misogyny sometimes. And, and when I've pulled some of them up on it in the past, it's like, well, what can you expect? We've been putting up with this for a really long time. And I'm like, well, you can't. You can't counterattack with by being uncivil. You've got to remain civil. You've got to remain, you know, with civility in terms of debate. And that's how I always try to handle my Twitter, even in the face of sometimes what can become very personalised abuse. I was a subject to a small case of an attack myself on social media just last week um, after um, a far-right journalist took one of my tweets and reframed it and kind of unleashed the alt-right on me <laughs> on Twitter. But but you can't um, you can't counter an attack with an attack. You have to remain civil. You have to remain fact-based, and you have to remain calm. And I think that's where lots of Corbynistas, so-called Corbynistas, are getting it wrong. They are they are they are feeding the attack by becoming attacking too, and that's just unhealthy for us all. We need to try and suck the toxic toxicity out of political debate at the moment. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I wonder if as well, sort of looking back at that historical case of Thomas Mann, where people kind of ended up favouring him, I do sort of wonder if that's going to, if that's the result of so much hate, because I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm actually on Twitter less than I used to be, because it's just people attacking each other now, and I find that similarly the press is so sort of attacking that I, I feel quite often I have to step away from it and get a breather and kind of remember that there are nice people in the world, you know. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think that kind of sometimes uh, points people to supporting things that the the press are attacking and and you know giving a making them go in a different direction? Well, I mean, in the case of Thomas Paine, I don't think it was necessarily him who became more popular. Oh, sorry, I called him what Thomas Mann throughout. Was... I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> you apologize. need to edit that. I Thomas will edit Pain, that. Yeah. Yeah, he. Um, it wasn't his himself that became more popular. It was that more people went and found out what the fuss was about in his writing. So he outsold the rest of the pamphlet movement, and his works were distributed for free amongst the working classes. So they were handed out to them. Um, so you know, by conservative estimates, it's about one and a half million people. He thought it was by the death had read Rights of Man. You know, for those days, a vast you know, a vast amount of people. Um, so I don't think it was him as an individual that became more popular, but that it actually meant more people read his his works and actually thought, actually, why shouldn't ordinary people be part of the political system? Why shouldn't we have a vote? Why shouldn't we have education? You know, that, that it was a step in the direction. And that's what I'm with Jeremy Corbyn, is that I think... What one thing is that people will go and find out for themselves, but there is an element of this idea that a lot of people will say that all tropes, no smoke without fire, no smoke without fire, and news has an incredible capacity to construct reality. So, the version we understand of events is often the version that the news has told us. And the famous one of the first studies of journalism, um, a book called, um. It talks about this using the construction of reality by an academic called Gay Tuckman, and it, it's it's all about this: is that the, you know that news is a is a discourse of truth, it's a genre of truth. Therefore, by putting its its patterns and its linguistic tools and its narratives on events, it makes them true. 
you know, it, it convinces us that this is a reality. So, yes, I do think that this will have worked on people. I, I know people who 100% would say, well, Jeremy Corbyn was an IRA supporter or, or he was a student of Russia, he was a Russian spy or um, he's an anti-Semite. I've met people myself who are convinced of it. So, yes, there is danger to it. It's not that it would... That's the, that's the fear is that... Um, that that things that can, can be subsequently disproven can become true. And once we're past Corbyn and once Corbyn has left kind of the leadership of the Labour Party and we are we are kind of five, ten years down down the path of, of kind of looking back on this moment with a bit of distance, um, I hope that a lot of people will will kind of think about what their role was in feeding into it. And as I say, I, I just want to make the point here that I'm not saying that the fears of people around anti-Semitism are not justified. What I'm saying is that this construction of this narrative, that this man, a lifelong campaigner against anti-racism, is a racist, um, is, is just, in my opinion, an, an incredibly clever constructed truth by the news media. Yeah, it's one of, the, one of the things I've always found interesting was even from uh, a year or so ago when he was both being called a, a terrorist and a pacifist at the same time, which I thought was an incredible yeah. feat of uh, accomplishment if he is both those things. Like, how do you do that? Um, but so, well, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask, apart from, so obviously you mentioned earlier that part of your campaign is, is to get Ipso uh, to change um, some of the, the journalist conduct. Um, is, is there any other ways to campaign for change? Obviously, you mentioned that people should not attack attacks with by being attacking. Um, what is there anything else that we can be doing actively? Is there any other campaigns that are going on right now? Well, I think spotting it is a good thing and countering it and putting through the narrative on social media and circulating is a good first step. I, I really do believe that we can debate better on social media and I really feel your pain in terms of walking away from Twitter and I've got several friends who've walked away from it. Mine came with Facebook, that was when I turned it off because um, I'm originally from Sunderland and I was really upset by things particularly through the Brexit debate not just the complete falsehoods that were coming through from some of the people I grew up with but the real dog whistle stuff as well and I just uh, and, and when I was countering at the kind of levels of abuse that I was getting or, or real kind of just dismissal and uh, and nastiness from people I knew and I just thought right that's it I'm, I'm kind of coming off from that platform but it can work better I do believe social media can work better and what it takes is a critical swell of people who are willing to sign up to, to debating in, in, with civility with facts and not getting drawn into mudslinging and abuse certainly not um, and maybe maybe so it's on a soft level and a, and a direct action level and activist level. So on one side, trying to change regulations for attack can only it has to be defended in the public interest rather than it being a free fall. And on the other side, of all looking at our behaviour and thinking if we can muddle through because. You know, the, with this division, particularly in this nastiness that's going on between the left and centre left, for example we're giving free rein for, for the far right to move into spaces and in places like Sunderland in the northeast, there is only far right often and the left as the political alternatives. There's always been the BNP and, and the ADL kind of fueling tensions in area and in Sunderland there's a big campaign at the moment that's led by Tommy Robinson 
um, where there's been marches through the streets. Well, in that city, the the people who are fighting against it are, co- are Labour Party members, the young lads who've always fought against it, and physically had to, you know, take beatings at times. And when they're looking at the press or, or Twitter and, and these kind of people they admire, they've admired for a long time, labelling them as racists and anti-Semites because they support Jeremy Corbyn, when they're on the front line fighting the far right in their hometown, it's it's painful. It's actually upsetting to them. I've had conversations as well as I've grew up with where it's like, I never thought I'd be labelled this. And we need to really suck this toxic toughest out of this debate, particularly the Labour Party do, and have some serious kind of open-hearted conversations. And one last question for you, um, is uh, which I just ask all of our guests, is apart from yourself, obviously, and your work on Twitter um, and uh, and your courses that you're teaching, um, who else would you recommend that listeners follow or read up on to find out about attack journalism and sort of campaigns against it? Have you got anyone that you go to uh, and that you enjoy following for that information? Well, not on this thing, but I do think that there's somebody who's really balanced and who spots these kind of things. And I don't know whether he would say that it in the same terms may attack journalism but there's actually a couple of people i would say suggest um you people follow sunny hadal who's a journalist and who yes last night we were just having a conversation on twitter about um the accusation from the editor of the jewish chronicle yesterday that when jeremy corbyn was talking about the economic abuses of the banking system during the 2008 economic attack he was actually talking about jewish people and sunny just went i mean you know sunny's been very measured and pointed out like me the warsaw ghetto was indefensible the graffiti on it but he was just like you can't say that is it criticizing the banking system as anti-Semitic? That is playing completely into the hands of conspiracy theorists to say that the global financial markets and media markets are kind of controlled by Jews. I mean, we're in crazy territory. Um, he's very good. I would say support Peter, uh, follow Peter Dukes, who um, was the journalist who live-tweeted the phone hacking trials and who runs Byline Media, and you could follow Byline Media. And um, Those people are often talking about themes and abuses of the press that are related to this. Attack journalism is just one manifestation of the abuses of the press that they identify. Thank you to Bethany for our chat and you can follow her on Twitter at Bethany Usher or if you were at Newcastle University doing the MA in Journalism, you can be taught by her as well. I mean, let me know if any of you do that just because of this podcast because that is above and beyond the usual guest appreciated duties but I am totally sure it would be worth it. And the other people Bethany mentions are quite easy to find on the Twitters, but links will be popped up on the episode page at the website too at some point soonish. Um, over the summer, I was meant to do a lot of that for old episodes, but hey, there was ice cream day. I mean, what is a guy to do? It will happen at some point in my lifetime, maybe uh, if ice cream ever runs out. I've got quite a few interesting folks lined up for future episodes, but as I say every goddamn show, if you have someone you think I should try to talk to or a subject you'd like me to talk to someone about, do let me know. Um, I will still avoid talking to MPs if I can. And while there's a few comedians I'm planning to get on, I'm mainly looking for experts, campaigners, activists, that sort of thingy. Um, and the kind folks at Acast have said I can use their swanky studios if I need to as well. So hopefully that will persuade a few people who are enticed by having to meet me in the flesh. Oh, wait. Oh, hang on. Why have all my future guests just cancelled? Oh, that's weird. Um, anyway, you can send recommendations at the Parpol Bro uh, Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group that no one uses, the contact bit on the website, 
website or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can have it tattooed on your body in a series of cryptic clues and then run around naked until a news report happens near you and then you interrupt Mike Bushell doing a piece about extreme chess and then it all goes viral and then I eventually see it, at which point I think you're just weird and ignore it and now you've wasted all that time and tattoos and you have a cold bum and an angry Mike Bushell. And no one wants that. No one. So probably, probably just best to email. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for tuning in once again, uh, despite the summer break. And I promise I won't leave you now for quite some time. I mean, <laughs> as if I can afford a holiday. Ha. Um, if you do enjoy the show, please do tell everyone you know. Ooh, I'm a poet and painfully aware that I shouldn't be. Uh, also, please do donate to the Patreon or Kofi if you can. Review the show on your favourite podcast apps, or if you already have reviewed the show, why not grab your friends' and family's phones and review it on there when they're not looking? If they have one of those phones with face recognition, you can secretly make a mask of their face and wear it to gain access and then after go to work pretending to be them and take over their lives while they sleep bit of fun a little bit of fun oh and don't forget to get in touch via all the social medias and anti-social medias and the middle-aged medias that pretend they want to be social but are finding excuses not to be Tart loads to Acast for housing this show in its audio home for gifted sounds. To my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the beeps and boops on the show. And this week, also to my wife, who is on Twitter, at Pro Resting. And she provided some of the voices at the beginning of the episode because I'm not, I'm not that good at impressions. Uh, this will be back next week when the Lib Dems announce that they've changed their minds and they'll now be a leaderless party operating like a borderless bank and with all their policies in a cloud and no one has to bother going into work. After four weeks, the cloud is hacked only to find the words People's Vote written in 162 fonts and colours and absolutely nothing else. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Boris Johnson's History Hour. Learn about history's greatest moments from the present's largest idiot. Be whatever the opposite of educated is on World War II. The war that ended when England defeated Germany and Russia and Bogota, all with just a very shiny spoon. Hey, how about the War of the Roses, where the Yorkists and the Lancastrians fought together against Ramonas and some tigers over a box of chocolates? Or did you know about the fall of Constantinople, where the city of Constantinople, which is still definitely called that, had an autumn? And yes, it's still definitely called that. Boris Johnson's History Hour. It'll be like you're travelling back in time, but you know, only in respects to intelligence and information. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.